1: This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals
0: Celebrating Lives. Always good to have you with us for another edition of This is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives and today we celebrate the life of a man who excelled at football but he's done so many other things in his life. He is one of the more intriguing characters that football has had in recent years and I'm delighted that Glenn Manton is in the studio with me.
1: Mance, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure.
0: How are you? I'm well. How are you? I've got to say, very, I, think, very well. I think you look really well.
1: Life's obviously pretty good to you at the moment. I work hard at life and I like to think that I reap some rewards. I was just around the corner last night at 8pm running hill sprints at the Tantrack. So whatever you're putting in is usually what you're getting out. So you like to still keep fit? Absolutely. I, um, I'm of the belief that this is the one life that you get. Uh, I'm not religious. It's not to say that I'm not spiritual, but I'm not religious. And uh, I'd love to believe in reincarnation. I really, really would. But I'm terrified at the prospect of coming back as a one-legged seagull chasing a hot chip or something (laughs) like that. So I tend to think, Pete, that this is the one life that I have. I need to be able to maximize my body, my mind, my intrigue, my creativity and do the best bloody job I can.
0: This is one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to chatting to you because we often talk to people in this very studio about their um, endeavours with the body, if you like, their physical endeavours, their athletic endeavours. But there's a lot more to you than just that, but we will touch on your football career. Are you keeping fit for a purpose? Are you still having a kick around? What are you doing?
1: I did actually have a kick of the football this year rather unsuccessfully in the sense that uh, the team didn't progress terribly well up at Shepparton. So the Shepparton Swans acquired my services for a few games this year. I would have liked to have seen a a bigger and better relationship but to be quite honest uh, where I was at in terms of the stage of my career and what I could offer them, uh, they couldn't probably appreciate it to the level that it needed to be appreciated. So after four games, I decided that their level of competitiveness probably wasn't quite on the same page as mine, and I I stepped back, because at the end of the day, whether I wish to admit it or not, and I probably don't, I'm 45 this year. And uh, risking life and limb playing AFL football, which you do at absolutely any level, you really do risk life and limb. In fact, we've seen that uh, all too sadly in Mm. recent times. It is a brutal contact sport. And uh, as the year progressed... I couldn't help but think that I needed to conserve my energies for my own training in my own life rather than putting it out onto a football ground. So I'm proud to say I was able to play a game of high-level football at the age of 45, but I think in terms of actually stepping out onto a field, unless something dramatic happens moving forward, my training, my physical training, will be uh, revolving around gym-type exercise, so Olympic lifting and, of course, sprint work. So why did you
0: do it? Did you do it for yourself? Did you pull the boots on for yourself? Or did you pull the boots on to be of
1: assistance to the football club? What was the motivation behind it? I would like to have been more assistance. Uh, but that didn't really pan out. I don't think the playing group was in a position where they wanted to really learn, which is fair enough. That happens to all of us at all different sorts of times. I'm sure you've got um, memories of times where people were offering you a way forward and you didn't wish to listen. I certainly can think of many times that a a map was provided and I scoffed at it and pushed to the side and then fell in a pothole. Uh, So I think there was a want to share and help grow a team, uh, but on my own, uh, I guess, e- ego march and path in life, I like to keep testing myself. I like to keep seeing if I have the uh, uh, the ability to not only step out of my comfort zone, but to perform, whether that's out on a football field, on stage, uh, in the quiet um, throes of, of night, if it's a, a case of being able to perform and, and support one's family uh, quietly behind the scenes. So, for me, there are great tests to be had. You've just got to be prepared to accept them, and failing is certainly something that I've never been afraid to do.
0: Now, uh, I mentioned to you before we went to air that this chat could go anywhere at any given moment, I think and we're I just, already there, aren't we? Yeah, I think we are. But I just, I also want to feed on what you're saying, and you talked about being on stage there. You've been, you've done stand-up comedy, have you not?
1: It's almost been uh, some sort of morph between improv performance and stand-up comedy. So I've just literally come from a uh, speaking gig now where the first probably 20 minutes is borderline stand-up and then it shifts dramatically into a quite a harrowing story about the work I did with a young heroin addict whilst I was playing AFL football. So for me, that's a really interesting juxtaposition, uh, both in content but also audience reaction. And I love seeing that. I love seeing the audience have a chuckle and all of a sudden, bang, confronted by the true elements of the story. So... Getting up onto a stage and, and sharing in, a, in any sort of spirit has been something I've always done. I think the first role I ever had was literally as the ass of the donkey in a nativity scene. Uh, I think <laughs> How did I actually, go? <laughs> well, I actually think I got bumped from it from memory too. I, I couldn't perform at the level required. But, uh, look, it, it's just a great deal of fun. I mean, I'm talking to somebody who's been in, I'd say, entertainment slash arts for, for 30 years you know the plus as it is there is an, and again we discussed this prior to this interview there is an art to the call there is an art to the performance, whatever that performance may be, whether it's uh, behind, the, behind the camera capturing the, uh, the actions of an actor or, or in front of the camera performing them. So I've got an interest in all facets and uh, certainly performance and, uh, and sharing with an audience is something that I love to do.
0: Lots of people have called me an artist over the years, Glenn, <laughs> but they normally put one word in front of that, uh, generally speaking. i similar <laughs> comment. Uh, the first time you got up in front of an audience... Was it something that you felt as though you were comfortable with instantly or is it a really daunting thing to do the first time you do it, especially if you're trying to make people laugh?
1: So, Pete, all I wanted to do as a young man was be a wicketkeeper for Australia. That's all I wanted to do. I was possessed. I'd sleep with the gloves next to my head in bed, which was always bit tough if you rolled over onto that sticky uh, rubbery surface. Wasn't pleasant (laughs) in the middle of the night but that's all I wanted to do and my grade 6 cricket grand final saw me the captain of Strathmore Primary School face the last ball against Strathmore North Primary School. As you can imagine the rivalry. I got a ball in the slot. I hit it over midwicket, and some kid unbelievably caught me uh, on the boundary. He had the big Coke bottle glasses on. How he caught me, I've got no idea. It was six runs to win and I was Certain we were going to have the, uh, the victory lap post game. As soon as the game's over, Mr. Corrie, six foot three principal, big cricket supporter uh, and passionate fan of the game, came over and uh, basically accosted me after the game and said, Listen, come Monday morning, you're going to stand in front of the school and you're going to explain to everyone why we lost this game. And I just took a deep breath and burst into tears and ran home from Strathmore Primary School to my house at 300 Napier Street, Strathmore, in tears, came through the front door with all the gibberish of a young man not being able to talk because of the pain uh, of the ask from the principal. And my mother said, what's happened? I said, look, we've lost the game, et cetera, et cetera. And Mr. Corrie says, I have to stand in front of the school Monday morning. What am I going to do? And my mother said, you're going to speak clearly and you're going to be honest. So I stood in front of those students and teachers, parents from memory, in the small school hall at Strathmore Primary on that Monday morning, and I stepped away from the lectern and I explained that we lost the game because I was an arrogant captain. And I could hear the air just leave the room. And I thought, you know what? If I'm honest, if I speak honestly, if I speak the truth, uh, let alone become engaging and, and learn my craft, then I can share stories. I can share these moments of public speaking, uh, not only glory, but tougher times too, where you've got to send some tough messages to an audience, uh, possibly about them or yourself. So that's where it all started with Mr. Corey thrusting me into the spotlight and saying, you must do this.
0: You were talking about the artistry of standing up in front of people. To me, you impress me as someone not only who has the right words, but has the right way of delivering those words and that can be just as important
1: sometimes absolutely everything that we say even in this interview if i just take a pause just for a moment and build that tension it's it's a cunning way to have that audience key in and i've just left a engagement where i had roughly 150 year 10 and year 11 students Uh, in a room working with me for two hours. Now, they actually stayed an extra 15 minutes after the bell after school, had parents saying, where are my kids? Because they want to stay and engage. They know fact from fiction. They know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, BS from truth, and they can cut through it very, very quickly. So if you've got real stories, you're prepared to listen to your audience, you're prepared to engage with them, not against them. Uh, you're not there to be prescriptive. You're there to share your life and, and put it on a platter for them, and they can take what they will from it then all of a sudden you have an engaging focus which allows you to, uh, I guess, transport an an audience and their energy from who is this strange man who's emptied our space to, you know what, this is a guy that I trust. And if you have an audience trusting you, whether it's a call of a greyhounds, call of an AFL grand final or a school group that you're working with to try and better their lives, then you're halfway there. So in other words, you're not talking at them, you're talking with them. Absolutely. All, All day, every day. So again, it's the light and shade, it's the, the opportunity to share key messages at the right time, but also hear their stories. One of the questions I love to ask my audience, and I just asked it, uh, as I said prior to this interview, what is your most treasured possession? And to have 150, 200 school aged students, let alone corporates or anyone else, share what their most treasured possessions are. In a room where they, they haven't shared that sort of information before, it's electric. And some of the things that people say are just extraordinary. A white soup bowl, uh, a handwritten letter, uh, basically something from their childhood, a blanket, a teddy bear. It just does not matter where they go with it. You get gem after gem after gem. And I think as the guest speaker, you can fall into a trap if you're not learned of thinking it's about you. It's actually never about you. You are the, the impetus, you are the stimulus to make it more about them. How can you tell
0: or how quickly can you tell whether you have the audience or the people that you're speaking to where you want them to be? Can you tell if you're losing them straight away? And oh, if so, absolutely. how do you get them back?
1: Luckily, I don't lose them all that often. But I think you can tell in the first 30 seconds where you're at in terms of your presentation. Probably again then you're tapping in in about five minutes. But after that, you're away. You know really where you are. I actually tell a story at the start of my presentations which acts as a disclaimer for me. It basically says anyone in the room who doesn't want to buy in, who doesn't want to have the conversation, that's fine. I'm not holding your hand. Even if you do buy in, I'm not holding your hand. I'm not there to inspire or motivate you because I don't believe I can do that. People change and work and uh, invest according to their desires, not yours. I can make all sorts of comments to hear you, uh, to you here now, Pete, and, You know, never wear those pants again or shave that beard off. But you'll do what you want to do. Mm. You won't do as I'm instructing you to do. It's that that just never works. And if you did happen to change your pants, which are lovely chinos, by the way,
0: thank you very much.
1: Uh, You may go back to wearing another pair of pants in in the days coming. So we're looking for lasting change, and I think that has to come from the, the individual themselves. So the best I can do is put some provocations to an audience, share some stories, lay it out, as I said, on a platter and say, hey, what you choose to do next with this is up to you. But I have to build some disclaimers in there to protect myself so that I don't get into my car and drive away and think, well, hang on a second, did I do enough? I know that I do enough. So it's a case of, radio. I've done everything I can do here. On to the next opportunity.
0: You've done this so many times, Glenn. You've spoken to so many different age groups, so many different lots of people. I'm sure you've heard things at times that have taken your breath away. Are there moments that stick in your mind in particular when you've been talking to a group of people or an individual that you've just had that moment where you
1: think, wow, I didn't see that coming? Happens all the time and I'm often asked, what do I get out of the sessions? Which quite truthfully, I usually end up getting more than the audience because you know, I'm the one who gets to go away with 150 different stimulus that I can pull apart, whether it's an expression or as you say, a comment and whatnot. Uh, just from today's session, a young girl spoke about her father's suicide. That's a stark moment where the entire session kicked me in the backside for a second and I'm brought back to a different sense of reality and where we're going and so forth. Now, we didn't dig into it in front of the entire group. Uh, Having said that, I think we will because I'm going to be uh, working with this group ongoing in 2019. So today was an entree, if you like. I can't wait to learn from this young lady. It's going to be fascinating to learn from her. So whether you're 17 or 70 or anything in between, I think all the uh, same parameters exist. There are great stories. Everyone has great stories. They really do. And if you've got the time and effort to invest in hearing those stories and eliciting the, the backstory to everyone's life, well, then all of a sudden you get a different context, not only to their life, but to yours.
0: When you're standing up in, so, in front of someone, in front of a group of people, you get that instant feedback. It's something that you don't get from writing a book. Now, you've written a few books, and I've got one in front of me. I like what you did there, by the way. Thank you. very nicely done. Put Your Damn Phone Down is the name of the book. Tell us about this book for a
1: start, and then I want to explore just uh, the difference in the feedback that you get. Sure. Well, this particular book is, uh, I guess, an incarnation of a couple of books prior that I self-published. I went to a publisher and I said, listen, I've had great success with these previous books off my own bat, But I think with your help, we can create something even bigger and better moving forward. And he's a wonderful gentleman. He's by the name of Rod Morrison uh, at Briar Books. There's a plug for his organisation. And his first question was, how many words does it have? And I said, it's not about how many words it has, it's about the impact it has. And he said, well, it's it's always about words. And I said, well, this is a book that's targeted primarily to say 15 to 30-year-olds and everything that I have in terms of my knowledge base tells me words don't count in that space in terms of word length, 50, 100,000 words. If you want me to write something like that, I will, but I don't think it'll be successful. I said, my idea here is to take 50 very provocative questions, very provocative questions, combine them with electronic links. So you've got some real world discussion and an electronic link to work back to these questions. And then on top of that, I could share some stories from my life, really raw, gritty stories, but I'll write them in bite-sized morsels, if you like. So two or three thousand words max, and that way young people will be able to essentially open this book, let alone parents, of course, and or teachers, uh, open this book at any page and dive straight in and extract something that will help better and build their person.
0: So feedback is something that is important to you. As we said, face-to-face, you get that instantaneously. How do you get feedback from the book? I've
1: been so fortunate, Pete, that uh, via social media, I only have one platform remaining anymore. I got off fa- Are you on Facebook? No. I got off Facebook. I was on Facebook for a couple of years. I got twisted into uh, joining it worst place I've ever visited facebook if it was a country it'd have absolutely no population and and no one would want to visit it why is
0: that is that
1: because oh, of the vitriol it, that goes on or? Oh, i i'm look i've been a part of social media so twitter facebook and and uh, instagram for probably 5 years i've completely uh, left my twitter account to be dormant uh, i've as i've just said uh, rejected Facebook and and put that to bed. I've remained on Instagram. And I must say, if we're looking at a percentage, literally 98% of my time on those particular uh, social media platforms has been nothing short of uh, a celebration and and pleasant. I've had a couple of people, uh, for whatever reason, and I really don't understand why people choose to do this, throw some hate my way. But, on, again, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's, it's water off a duck's back. It doesn't worry me at all. Uh, but it, it's just a, a strange space. I don't really enjoy it so much because, as we've discussed in this interview, I'd much rather talk to the other human beings around me rather than uh, be a voyeur and, and, and pretend I understand what's going on in their life through picture and or otherwise. Uh, but I have left my Instagram account, and I'm really, really excited by the amount of feedback, comment, Uh, and also promotion of this particular book from all sorts of people in saying, you know what, this book's making a difference to my life already, which is just so wonderful to hear.
0: Do you think with social media, Glenn, that we'll turn full circle because all of these wonderful things came along and everyone was infatuated with them and everybody had to have them because everybody else had them, but now we're starting to see the negative effects of it. Do you think that we'll go out the other end of the circle?
1: I really do. I'm finding that in my business. I'm finding more and more organisations turning to me and saying, now we've heard you don't do anything essentially electronic. It's all about storytelling. It's about engaging us. It's about us working together. You get on the inside and work back out. Can we have some of that, please? Can you come and do this for us? And whilst I'm looking at you here in the studio, just, I can't help but laugh at the sense of, I'm not into the greyhounds. I've never been to a greyhound race in my life. I've never put a bet on in my life. And yet I guarantee that you could blow my socks off with three or four Greyhound related stories, which I'll just be sitting here either laughing, crying or anything in between, because that is the power of storytelling and sharing with another human being. So it would be nice to think that we would get back to a time and a place where we got onto a tram and we openly engaged with other people instead of becoming lost in our phones and or uh, in, in any sort of situation publicly. I mean, you only have to go out to dinner in, in, hypothetically Chinatown to see hundreds of people with their head in a phone instead of talking to the person opposite. I'm not saying a phone should be thrown down a stairwell and stomped upon. I'm just saying, listen, we just need to back this off a little bit. And if we are going to use it, let's use it as a connective resource. Let's use it as a tool in which we can indulge and share together rather than being insular and, and, I guess, segregated from the rest of the society around us.
0: One last parallel I'd like to draw from what you just said about greyhounds. Greyhounds is where I started. That was my first job calling the greyhound racing. And when they put the ban on greyhound racing in New South Wales, I was indignant about that. And the reason that I was is because I've seen so many people who do the right thing. And yes, there are people who do the wrong thing, and they've got laws to deal with that. You sometimes talk to people who would be perceived from the other side of the room as being... On the wrong side of the tracks, sure. perhaps undesirable, but it's only when you actually delve in that you find out what the real story is.
1: Absolutely, that's uh, maybe it's drawing a long bow, but that's why I don't like discussions around who was the you know Gary Ablett's the greatest ever footballer, all of this sort of stuff. Let's let's just think about that for a second. Gary Ablett Junior is the greatest ever footballer, and or Senior. Okay, that that might be someone's opinion. But let's compare their career, their impact, their effect on football and beyond to Neil Danaher. Mm. Now, I'm not trying to say one's better than the other. I'm saying the exact opposite. I'm saying when you know the backstory, when you look at it in a holistic sense, I mean, you, you know more about football than me in terms of the history of the game, I'm sure. But every story I've ever heard is that Neil Danaher was the best of the Danaher's. Yep. Every story I've heard is that his career was cut short in its prime by injury. Uh, And, of course, we know what he's gone on to achieve now. Now, if we weigh all that up and put it against Gary Ablett Jr., Sr., Buddy Franklin, Glenn Manton, whoever you wish to throw into the equation... Who's right? Who's wrong? Where's, where's this? I, I like the idea that we're celebrating people for their contributions and that, as you said, regardless of the side of the track, we understand the backstory. What's actually gone into them playing one game, 10 games, 100 games, becoming the CEO, becoming a teacher, a doctor? What I just love the story behind it and the idea that we're going to throw a blanket uh, call out there and say, this person is the greatest. I think it kind of uh, it misses the point of why you're actually even playing sports or living life.
0: Well, there you go. We've been in our first segment. We've hardly spoken <laughs> about football to a degree. And you talked about the backstory. We're going to take a break and I want to find out about your backstory sure. and how you came to play at the top level. Fascinating chat with Glenn Manton. I hope you're enjoying it so far. We've got a lot more still to talk about on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with Glenn after the break. Yeah! This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan, Fitzhoven Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We've already covered lots with Glenn Manton. We still have a lot to get through on This Is Your Sporting Life. You mentioned backstory before we went to the break. Glenn, tell us yours. Where did your football journey begin?
1: Well, I guess my football journey began with cricket and being obsessed with wanting to be a wicket-keeper for Australia. They talk about uh, a professional having 10,000 hours. I think it's Gladwell's book, Outliers, talks about having 10,000 hours of experience at something. Well, I would have easily put in 10,000 hours throwing a tennis ball against a wall. That's all I wanted to do, was be a wicket-keeper for Australia. And then, lo and behold, as many of your listeners will uh, appreciate, and I'm sure you do too, all of a sudden, something changes. And I just had enough of cricket. And uh, I went and played baseball and uh, also started heading down a rabbit hole of self-doubt and, uh, I guess, poor form as a human being. And uh, this culminated around the age of 17. I'd just finished my HSC year before it became VCE, and my life was really spiralling out of control. I'd gone away from the idea of being Glenn Manton, the person, and I'd embraced the idea of becoming Glenn Manton, the footballer. And that didn't work so well for me because uh, my authentic self is very, very important. And I took on values and directions and motivations, which I thought a footballer had to display. And the end result was me standing on Sydney Road in Coburg, having cut my arm in half, my right arm. And I was whisked off to a hospital And an English surgeon, microsurgeon, who'd actually been seconded and found himself in the hospital that night, standing at the foot of my bed, told me that I was a fake, a phony, a fraud. He said to me, you're a right joke. And he told me that he was going to perform surgery on every other person in the hospital there that night, that I would be the last person that he performed surgery on. And it was my job to think about who I wanted to be as a person because he thought I was being a rather ordinary characterisation of myself. Uh, Before he left the room, he opened the door about 10 inches, pointed to the doorknob and said to me, Do you see this doorknob? And I nodded my head and he said, I'll just let you know you'll never even turn the knob of a door again, but you need to get your head together. You need to have a good think about who you are. And the nurse drew the curtain, the door was closed behind him and uh, I was left in a very treacherous position, Pete. What do I do next? Do I continue to head down this false phony path that, for whatever reason I'd embarked on or do I turn myself back to my authentic self? And I promised myself that night and I've carried out this promise every single day for the rest of my life where I've been in Melbourne or Mumbai, stand in front of the bathroom mirror and ask myself one question, that question being based on colloquial Australian expression are you fair income? And I've always been able to answer that question: Are you fair income? So, on the back end of having my arm basically torn to shreds, I rehabbed. I made my way back to the Essendon under nineteens. Somehow, I was named captain. Somehow, I was runner-up in the Morish Medal that year. I knocked on the door of Kevin Sheedy's office because he invited me to come in and talk to him. I imagined that he was going to celebrate what I'd achieved, but instead he said, there's the door, you're delisted, you're not good enough to play here. So I got on my bike, rode back to my house, remembering, of course, Windy Hill is in the same street as my family house, Napier Street, Strathmore. I ride home, make it exactly halfway home to Salmon Reserve. Again, anyone listening to this can Google map uh, that particular location. Stumble in the Salmon Reserve and I'm faced with the uh, decision do I continue to ride home and find a way forward, or do I give up? So I ride home, reset goals, reset direction. Kevin Sheedy redrafts me. It's like dropping your girlfriend on a Friday, picking her up again on the Monday. It's not really a done thing. Uh, he has me back. I then spend the next three years of my life working towards playing consistent AFL senior football. Uh, he knocks. He asks, I should say, for me to knock on the door again. Knock on the door again. Enter his office at the start of 1995, and I was, <laughs> I was so naive and foolish. I, in retrospect, I'm just an idiot. But I honestly can say that I really believe I was in the top three performers of that preseason. I felt like I was really contributing well both in the weight room, on the track, and of course with my skill development. And I thought he was going to celebrate that, but instead, the old two card trick. He delisted me again, and so all of a sudden, I'm. Um, off the football radar at the start of 1995, don't have a team. The Essendon Football Club wouldn't even let me take my boots. So I didn't even have boots to continue my career, and I thought my career was fairly much over. But I got on the same bike, reached the same park in Salmon Reserve, probably cried the same tears, and said, You know what? I'm not done here. And before you know it, Carlton take a chance and they draft me in that pre season draft. And uh, I end up standing on the MCG at the end of that year as a member of the Carlton Football Club's premiership team, uh, which is now, of course, in 2019, as we push into uh, a pretty celebrated bunch. And we don't look like we're going to win a premiership for some time uh, in the future. But my career in terms of football then spanned essentially the next 10 seasons with Carlton.
0: So what was your attitude to what Kevin Sheedy did to you?
1: Do you harbour any... I've said this publicly. It is a fantastic question. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, He... Let me down not once but twice, not in his decision-making because he is 101% permitted to make a judgment call. He thinks he can play, he doesn't think I can play. He's more than welcome to deliver it however he wishes to. The problem I have, and I have said this to him in private and in public, is that on both occasions he promised me as a young person that he would follow up with me and support me, and on both occasions he forgot to do so. And that has also been uh, brought into my life as a cornerstone of about what I do for young people. I never forget anyone. If I promise something, I deliver. It doesn't matter how much angst or stress or time it takes. If I say I'm going to be there, particularly for a young person, I'm there. If I'm there to listen, I listen with intent. I don't promise something. I'm not, I'm not going to deliver or not capable of delivering for a young person. So that was the thing that hurt me that this man whom I had respect for, uh, I had uh, adulation for in the sense that he was the great Kevin Sheedy, had let me down twice in terms of forgetting a promise.
0: So when you stand there at the end of 1995 and someone hangs a premiership medallion around your neck, it would be pretty hard for just a normal human being not to have a bit of an up yours moment. Was there a sense of that? At that time?
1: Not at all. Uh, I did do a a little bit of an up yours moment, as you put it, at uh, Princess Park. Uh, Visi Park, Icon Park, I never know what to call it in 2019, 2018-19, where I took my jacket off in front of however many supporters, maybe 50,000 supporters, and waved it above my head to the crowd. And I must say that if I could get some footage of that particular incident, I'd love to see that again, because it really was a magical moment where you just let go of so much uh, angst towards another human being. Not that it was anger or so much, it was just... Just pain, just disappointment because Essendon was that club that you grew up next door and you always dreamed of representing them and there's embarrassment that goes into that space and so forth too, not just within Kevin Sheedy's dismissal of your abilities but in your own dismissal of your abilities. I was never the same athlete or footballer after cutting my arm in half, never the same. How did you do that? Oh, sheer stupidity, arrogance, indifference and uh, a temper which saw me thrust my arm through a shop front window and and cut it in half. So make no mistake, it was nobody else's responsibility, fault or uh, action other than my own that caused that to happen. And uh, unfortunately... Uh, On this particular evening and or the weekend that's uh, coming, uh, literally hundreds of young people are going to self-harm in all sorts of different ways, whether it's the result of a a fight a brawl spilling out on the street, which was my circumstance, or uh, cutting themselves with some sort of blade or or any number of things, eating incorrectly or running into the night. In fact, I was asked by a young person recently, have you self-harmed in recent times? And I, I said no, but then I thought about it and I thought there have been times where I've gone on these ridiculous training sessions for hours and hours and hours to deal with anger and pain and, and suffering and so forth. And that's a form of self-harm. I mean, it's not healthy to go and run 10 kilometers and not have enough energy to run back. Yeah. That's you punishing yourself. So these times in my life, which still continue, but obviously to a much lesser degree, uh, were very prevalent back in uh, my early uh, teens and, and and into that uh, 17, 18 type space, where it was a, crossroads for a lot of people. So um, my mistakes are mine to own. I've owned them. Uh, as I said, as an athlete, it really has affected my athletic abilities, not just physically, but mentally. It's probably uh, helped shape a lot of them in a positive way. But there's no doubt I wasn't the freewheeling human being that I was prior to that.
0: One supplementary question about what the doctor told you. Please. Was it a, a Crossroads you talk about, one of those sliding door moments. When he said that to you, were you angry? Or were you just set back on your heels so much that you had to do something about it? All of a sudden, it was the moment that jolted you back into reality.
1: Uh, Beautifully put. It it really was a a case of (laughs) jumper leads to the temple and whack. No one had ever spoken to me like that before in my life, let alone a complete stranger. I think that was an added impetus in terms of the conversation, just who was this man? How could he judge me so correctly? because you know, the truth's the truth he He saw a jerk, and I was a jerk so how how does he pick up on this and and why has he spoken to me like this, and what is this proposition that he 's given to me and, and is it valuable and as I said once i 'd wiped away the tears and removed the ego and calmed myself down to a point where I could actually appreciate what the uh, what the well the mission was and and whether I chose to accept it or not. Uh, I made that decision that it was something I was going to accept and I needed to accept, and it really, as I said, shaped my life uh, to this point and continues to do so.
0: Back to the premiership, Glenn. (laughs) Um, Six disposals, I think, you had in that grand final, and looking at the stats,
1: you had six disposals and six marks. Mm. Is that right? I took some wonderful marks that day. Yeah, I really did. I took some really, really big marks that day, and uh, every single one of them was a reflection of Alec Epis, uh, the great Essendon. Cookaburra uh known by that moniker. Uh, the efforts that we put in uh, every Wednesday morning to that point and then ongoing in Clorinda Reserve, the bottom of Park Street, Mooney Ponds, we would meet there every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. and we would train. And it's amazing to think that on two occasions, both the AFL Grand Final in 95 and then in a random game against Collingwood in front of the members section uh, at the MCG, On those two occasions, whilst I was gathering the ball and uh, marking the ball, I actually genuinely felt like I was with the Kookaburra at that local park. I felt like I had all the time in the world. There was no one else there. It was just me and him, and we were just going through drills. And everything that he was telling me would work was working. And that's a beautiful feeling, especially for a younger person, to have heard that from somebody more learned, more knowledgeable than yourself, to say, listen... You just stick with this plan here and it'll work out. You put in the hard work. It'll work out because not only will hard work obviously win the day, but you've got some skill to match it. So just stick with it. And as you mentioned, the, the AFL Grand Final 95, and as I said, that other moment in front of the member stand against Collingwood at the MCG, I just felt like it was me and him and the MCG uh, enjoying ourselves on those particular days. So, yeah, six statistical uh, marks, if you will, and then six possessions. It didn't really matter. I felt like if I had played the whole game, I would have taken 80 marks. It was that sort of day.
0: They were a pretty handy team, the 95 Carlton team. They were by far the best team in the competition. Yeah, But you get to grand final day and you know that anything can happen. What's your recollection of arriving at the big
1: day? I wasn't stressed at all. I knew we'd win. I knew we'd win easily. The the team was just that good. The confidence was just that high. Every training session that year was like a party. It was enjoyable to be there. And really what you've just shared with me there in terms of your question puts me into a bit of a dark space because quite honestly, when you look back on it, and I'll throw this back at you, did that team underachieve or overachieve? What Mm. do you think?
0: Well, they certainly achieved for what they were in that year, but it was what happened after that.
1: Underachieved. Yeah. Yeah. We underachieved. I really believe that and that's why you have to take your hat off to the Brisbane's and the Geelong's and you hope that the Richmond Football Club uh, in this particular time frame can capitalise on something special because it looks like they have something special. It looks like they really enjoy each other's company. It looks like they really enjoy their football. It looks like mistakes and errors are nothing more than blips on a map not, not to be condemned but to be celebrated as, hey, you were having a go at doing something special there. You mucked it up. So be it. Let's move on from that, So everything just seems positive. It's a, it's a real tidal wave. And I must say, it looks a little bit like, if we talk a little bit of finals footy for, for 2018, it looks like Melbourne might have caught the bug a little bit too. Mm. And I'd, I'd hate to think what happens if Hawthorne don't stomp on them uh, in the final series, because I kind of feel like Melbourne could be the second coming of the Western Bulldogs. But there's another great example, the Western Bulldogs, did they really get the most out of their wonderful ascension to the top? I, I'd say no.
0: I disagree with you a little bit on that because I think all the planets aligned in that year because they weren't the best team of a couple of years ago. They were the best team in September. Mm. And maybe they just got absolutely everything out of themselves. And inevitably, when you have a watershed moment like that for any sporting organisation, the analogy Glenn, I always use is, I don't know how many times Sir Edmund Hillary climbed Everest, but I bet the first time was the best one.
1: (laughs) No doubt. I agree with you there. I would suggest, though, that the Western Bulldogs, rather than going from uh, premiers to out of the finals, would have liked to have seen themselves up and about in that space. So Richmond, if Richmond win or lose uh, the next two or three years, if they make, let's just say, three prelims and, and win a grand final, I think that's a fantastic achievement. I think the Carlton Football Club in '95 would have been better served with a a more diligent approach to 96 and 97 and really capitalise on the great talent that they had.
0: I'm almost forgetting to take breaks. It's been such a (laughs) fascinating chat, but we have to pay for this somehow. So I will take a break (laughs) and then I'll ask you a little bit more about that post-95 era. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Glenn Manton as much as I am on This Is Your Sporting Life at Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Plenty more to come after the break. Don't go anywhere. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan, Fitzhoban Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. A great pleasure to have Glenn Manton with me in the studio. Glenn, just, if you would, elaborate on that thought about 95. Was it the fact that you, you were such a good team, that you thought you were invincible? Did you take, collectively, did you take your foot off the gas because you just thought it was going to happen after that because the group was
1: so good? Two factors stand out for me. One is a story which really, unless you hear it from the man himself, I'll leave as hearsay, but I'll mention it regardless. David Parkin talks about the fact that the senior players, of which I wasn't one, more or less said to him in 96, you take back the reins we need a little bit of a break from steering this pony. So I think that contributed to a little bit of the derailment of the team because I think the team had this wonderful internal ability to control itself. So I think that was a little bit of a mistake. And it's a shame that Parco, from all reports, and as I said, comes from the horse's mouth, uh, took back the reins. The other thing that I think was detrimental to Carlton's success moving forward was the strange and no, I don't blame anyone for this other than just sheer coincidence the strange makeup of the list so there was quite a few older players there was the middle tier sort of guys such as myself, Anthony Kutafidis, Ange Christou, these sorts of guys, and then the younger guys. They just needed probably a, a few more guys through that middle section to really balance the list. And I think you see that through some sporting clubs, not just AFL football but right across the globe where all of a sudden, well, Geelong could be a great example of that. You know, yeah. Their top end's pretty old now and been around for long. Like, Do they keep rolling the dice with these guys or do they move them on and try and build their, their middle section, if you like. So, because I think that you know, twenty through through twenty, uh, twenty two through twenty eight is probably the critical age, and I. Don't quote me on this, but I, I really do remember there being quite a stark drop-off between each age group. And I think that also causes a little bit of uh, disharmony, not not in a, a negative sense of um, off-the-field trouble, because I don't think I ever experienced anything like that at Carlton. But in terms of just on-field performance, you've got guys at varying levels of your career. Ideally, you'd imagine that you'd have 22 guys, 24 guys equally of ability each week. And I think for Carlton, that just hurt them through that time.
0: Let's fast forward a little bit. You said you turned up to the 1995 grand final just confident and sure that you were going to win. Did you turn up on preliminary final day of 1999 (laughs) confident and sure you were going to win?
1: I was always confident against uh, Essendon. I never thought I'd play in a game like that. And uh, it'd be really fascinating. And someone such as yourself uh, with such access and knowledge, uh, I'm tossing it back to you would you think that was a top three game of all time? Is that is it that I good, so. that game?
0: Yeah, I, I think because of the unexpected nature as well. And Stick still talks about Kuda mm. in that final quarter that he played, and Kuda's been a guest on this program. Mm. But uh, my recollection is probably a little bit vaguer than yours, but I do remember him just ripping it to shreds. Yeah.
1: Look, there were so many heroes and villains that day. Uh, there 's some uh, that iconic picture of uh, Justin Murphy at the end of the game yeah. has now quite honestly taken quite a sour turn with the way his life has played out. Uh, I remember that game as being the only sporting contest, uh, let alone time in the gym, let alone personal training time. Where I actually wanted to just take a time out and go and sit on the sidelines in case I got involved at a critical time. Like it was that much stress and tension. And when Mark McCurry, who I'd played a lot of junior football with, had the ball in his hand with essentially a chance to seal the game. I, I thought game over here. And for him to kick a point, yeah. I still laugh about it. And I think, oh, my God, I almost put my life in that gentleman's hands. Like he was that good a player and he was that good a finisher around goal. He kicks a point. Incredible game. And it's a, it was a real pleasure to play in it. Probably almost a greater highlight than 95 in some respects. Just that sheer rivalry between the two teams. And on a personal level, my history with the Essendon Football Club, Matthew Lloyd and I have such great memories going against one another. That was a time in my life where I know for a fact his family genuinely hated me. Uh, so, you know, there's just so many subplots to that particular outcome. It was just a magical game.
0: The other thing I remember about that day is that the state election was on that day. And Jeff Kennett was unbackable. If, if the bookmakers were framing odds, he would have been $1. five. And I remember my late great colleague, Drew Morfitt, saying at the end of that game, he was calling the game on TV and he said, well, he said, if Carlton can beat Essendon today, then maybe Kennet might even get rolled in the election. Ha! Huh. never thinking it could happen. And a few hours later, it
1: did. It did, yeah. yeah. An extraordinary day for uh, for Melbourne, really. I I just, as I said, I, I could talk about that game all day.
0: I want you to talk about not a game, but something else that happened at Carlton a couple of years later and all of the salary cap, breaches that happened all the the brown paper bags etc do you think that the football club is still feeling the effects of that 17 years later or is it long past that era
1: no i think they are still feeling the effects of what was a dark time a, a back room time a time that i wasn't privy to i certainly wasn't being paid in brown paper <laughs> bags i was getting a couple of jelly snakes and a, and a couple of jelly frogs and that was about it see you later uh I had no idea that that sort of mechanism was underpinning the club and I also had no idea that the AFL would really come down so hard upon them and in some respects have probably shot themselves in the foot because the Carlton Football Club is very important to the competition. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, some would say the club's become irrelevant. And you, you do look at their ability to, um, I guess, resurrect since that time, and their relevance hasn't been high. But people who support football and sports have to appreciate, love them or hate them, Collingwood counts. Richmond, this is why Richmond's just such a, a rich yeah. fabric for the, the AFL landscape to have back in, in full force. Collingwood, Richmond, Carlton, these are teams, Essen, of course, that the competition needs because you want to turn up to the MCG and struggle to get get a car parking spot when Carlton's playing Hawthorne, again, another great team. These are powerhouse uh, important clubs for the competition. So to have one still on its knees, and I do think the Carlton Football Club is still crawling, they're, they're not walking, uh, is detrimental to the, not only the club itself, but the competition. How long do you think before they can walk? I, I think the club really struggles to understand its true identity moving forward. There's been that much political, uh, I guess, posturing behind the scenes. And I think that that, again, has hurt the direction of the club. I think they really need to revisit the value of relationships and communication, really just bring it back to square one and decide how they wish to really map its way forward because it seems like every time they have a plan, somewhere along the line it gets changed. You know, Dennis Pagan became... words elude me the name of Collingwood coach and Mick Malthouse. How can I forget Mick Malthouse? Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, this doesn't work out. So it's, it's always, a, to me, a, a Band-Aid fix. At some stage, you've got to really rip that off and clean out the wound and say, right, we're going to heal this properly. Because uh, there's just too many players leaving that club, excelling at other clubs to say that, That's just an anomaly. It seems to be the norm. There's too many young players at that club who aren't really developing the way they should. So again, there must be something in the mix that just isn't sitting right. And I'm not going to blame a board or a coach or a playing group. I'm going to look at it as the Carlton community. We all have to take responsibility. And and I'd certainly have my hand raised in the air uh, and waving it like I just don't care to say, you know what, if I can contribute, I'd love to contribute. Has anybody asked you? No one's asked me. No one probably has much idea about what I do and how I do it and uh, you know whether it's my work with young people my work with the AFL uh, my philosophies in life uh, I think that's probably the frustrating thing that yes there's uh, the Glenn Manson interview happening here now and that's that's wonderful but there are Countless people associated with the Carlton Football Club, either as past players or as uh, ardent supporters or even just as influential uh, contributors from the outside who could play a, a wonderful role. And and help move that club forward. And I think at the very least, and this is where I come back to the the idea of communications or relationships, at the very least, you should be touching base with these people to see what they have to offer, to see what you can learn, to see what conversation can help your club progress. I'm not sure how you see it, Pete, but it seems to me like the Richmond Football Club literally took a stick, drew a line in the stand and said, this is what we previously have done. hasn't been good enough.
0: And I think Geelong did the same thing as well, going back in that 2006 season that they said, enough is enough. And what do they say the definition of insanity is, keep on doing the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Correct. And both of those clubs have changed things around.
1: Yeah. And look, if you're looking to explore my philosophy, if I was in charge of the Carlton Football Club, for example, why would I want to employ people who have only been associated with football? you've got to have more understanding of life and and the mechanisms of life beyond just football. And why would I want to bring in one of the world's best on ballers and put him in charge of the defensive unit? You know, it just doesn't seem to be, and I'm not saying that's that's what's happened at Carlton, but that is often what you see in football clubs. We'll just get the past champion involved and he or or she will be able to affect our club positively. It's not always the case. You've got to explore. You've got to look for people who are complementary and who have the same fabric in mind in terms of how they can weave it all together. And I just think sometimes Carlton, like many organisations, don't look far and wide enough and also laterally enough.
0: And your teammate, Kuda, has said a similar thing, that he would love to be involved in the football club, but at the moment, he seems to be on the outer.
1: Well, let's use Kuda just as a really simple example. What does the Carlton Football Club have to lose by employing, beyond anything else, just employing Kuda as a weights coach slash role model in the gym? What do they have to lose? You've got a guy who's 46 years of age, Uh, I might have given him an extra year there, but I think he's 46 uh, years of age who's still in fantastic condition. I'm not saying he's there to, uh, I guess, blow his own horn, but he's there to mentor and support young men in the gym. Now, if you can't be inspired to look at a past champion who still looks after himself, and, of course, there's lots of I's to dot and T's to to cross in this particular analogy, but surely there's some value there. And it could just be two days a week. Does he want to be head coach for the Carlton Football Club? Probably not. So, again, just looking for appropriate roles, opportunities. And it it may not exist, but at least explore it.
0: And I think your philosophy in life generally would be, well, give it a try. And if it doesn't work, then don't continue with it. But you're never going to know unless you try something.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and again, you've been in, in the media halls for many more years than I have. Uh, if you're looking to put together a breakfast radio host threesome, if you will, uh, you can either do it with a synergy that they're going to enjoy each other's company and be able to bounce off one another and have some banter and uh, share some light and shade, or you're going to look for three names who potentially ultimately derail your entire franchise. So it's, it's not just a football thing. This is a reflection of life and or all business. You've got to look for some synergies, some continuity, uh, dare I say it, some, some connection and love. And the Carlton Football Club probably needs to get back to that as well.
0: Yeah, It's the old saying in footy, isn't it? A champion team will beat the team of champions. Absolutely. We're just about out of time. Uh, one thing I will do is I will make sure that we put the full context of this interview because it has gone for seven way hours. Longer. Yeah, seven, <laughs> seven and a half we're up to. At the wow. <laughs> Not quite. But uh, if you want to listen to the full interview, we will put it up on a podcast so you can hear Fantastic. everything that Glenn Manton has had to say. We'll take our final break and we'll come back with some final final thoughts on the Carlton Premiership players' career when we come back on the other side of the break. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. It's been a very different chat to the one that we normally have on This Is Your Sporting Life, and I say that in the most positive of ways. It's been fascinating, Glenn, to sit down and, and chat to you. One thing that has come through, I think, you've got so many aspects to your life, so many interests in your life, but you still love the game, don't you? You're still passionate about the
1: game. AFL football is an incredible sport. An absolutely incredible sport. I mean, behind you in studio here is uh, some skateboarding footage. Skateboarding's an amazing sport in its own right. But where else on this planet is there a 360-degree team-based combative sport game? And people can say that the game's been dumbed down and pacified and it's politically correct and whatnot. And to some extent it has, and rightly so. But it's still an explosive cocktail of energy that... Few sports, if, energy, if any, I could potentially say ice hockey, but few sports hold what AFL football holds. And to think that a, a man or a woman can thrust themselves 10 feet in the air and take a mark or lie themselves flat out and tackle another human being running at breakneck speed, where else can you see that, let alone in front of 60, 80, 100,000 fans at a, at a MCG-type arena? Like It's extraordinary.
0: It's been wonderful to get your insight from a football perspective but also from a life perspective. As I said, I've got the book in front of me. Put Your Damn Phone Down as the name of it. What's next for you?
1: More books? I'm busy trying to write another book as we speak, so busy doing that, uh, busy raising my three children, so my eldest son, uh, 18, my middle son, 17, my daughter turning 15 on Halloween, which is appropriate because she's a live wire. Uh, those children are paramount to my success in life, my wants in life. I don't look back at anything that I do. I'm just not interested whether it was good, bad or in between. I'm looking forward and I'm looking forward with all of my heart to this summer because I think this summer I have an opportunity to essentially do a pre-season with both of my boys and that's something I've longed for for a long time, to be in the gym, to be outside, to be working with the football, to seeing them both progress because my middle son has just essentially announced that he's going to step away from basketball, where he's been incredibly successful, and turn his attention back to football. So I'm hoping in 2019 both boys will play together in the TAC Cup competition, and I'm hoping at the end of 2019 both of those boys will find themselves into a long and successful AFL career.
0: So in closing, when you say you don't look back, do you speak to your sons and your daughter and learn the lessons that you learned along the way? Do you do you impart some of that knowledge you gained along the
1: way? As anyone who's a parent listening would know, it's much easier to parent someone else's kids than it is your own. And in my own house, I'm the fool. I'm the person who doesn't know, who hasn't been there, who has to be kidding themselves. You're kidding yourself, Dad. Uh, But I try my best to share uh, curated opportunities, to share a roadmap. I try not to be prescriptive. It is difficult when it's your own child not to be prescriptive and and demonstrative in in a direction, but I do try very hard to do that. I see so much of my personality in each of my children. I mentioned my boys' success moving forward. You know, I'm wishing equal, if not more, success for my daughter in whatever she chooses to truly pursue, whether it's sports, arts, entertainment, something in terms of business. Uh, I hope she has equal amounts of success, and I look forward to time spent with her on a similar level. Uh, can I guarantee anything for my children based on my life? Not at all. We really have gone full circle here. It still comes back to their responsibility, their wants, their desires, and their positioning to want to invest everything they have in reaching the goals that they've set for themselves.
0: It's always so enjoyable to sit down and explore a sporting journey, and your journey includes a premiership medallion, so it's great to explore that. But it's been fascinating to explore so much more about you, the person, and all of the things that make you the interesting and uh, fascinating character that you are. It's been a pleasure to have you.
1: Peter. it's been a pleasure to be here with you. I know we're extending time even by saying this, but I do want to make note that to come in and speak with someone such as yourself who I've listened to for countless years uh, behind the scenes and, in, and of course, through your calls, uh, sharing football and beyond, uh, it's a pleasure to speak with a real journo. Not many people would realise that everything you've asked me here has essentially been on your toes in studio. Uh, it's your fourth interview of the day. I'm not sure if we're allowed to say <laughs> that publicly or not, but I've put that out there now. It's tiring, it's exhausting, and you've made a you know, an hour-long interview feel like five minutes, and it's been a pleasure to be here.
0: Loved every minute of it. Thanks for coming
1: in. Pleasure.
0: Glenn Manton joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget, the podcast of the full interview will be available. Just search for This Is Your Sporting Life and we will have another very special guest. Same time next week. Hope you can join us then.